with Donald Trump having weaponized masculinity, what is the effect going forward? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Of the many crises in America, the question of what is masculinity in the 21st century underlies so many of our major challenges and perhaps opportunities. We remember when asked what is right and truth, Donald Trump said, oh, it's dominance. Police must dominate the streets. Strong women? No, he calls them nasty and cannot be tolerated. His followers are against women having control over their own bodies. They oppose equal marriage rights for homosexuals. They place soldier in their camouflage outfits and massive arsenals of assault weapons. There is a great deal of anger and rage among men. Beneath anger and rage is, of course, great fear. Of what are they afraid? What triggers the display of aggressive macho? Why do some men feel so insecure about their own masculinity that they act in such antisocial ways? How is it that so many American men are enthralled with Trumpism through which masculinity has been intentionally weaponized? Its most manifest form, the policeman, how much damage has been done and are necessary changes clear? Do we know what to do? Underlying so many of our serious problems today is perhaps a deep crisis of masculinity. What is meant by the term toxic masculinity? Is it changing? With us today is David Rosen, who has written a new article on this topic in Counterpunch. Rosen is a writer and business development executive. He's the author of four nonfiction books, as well as many scholarly articles, book reviews, and popular pieces on media tech, telecom, politics, sex, and American life. His latest book is Texas, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Texas Guinan and Guinan. Guinan, Texas Guinan, G U I N A N, and Prohibition New York, Gotham's Secret Nightlife in the Roaring Twenties, is just out from the History Press. Professionally, David served on the management teams taking public uh, two media tech uh, startups. He currently serves as business affairs officers for an animated children's TV series, Shoe and the Resistance, about kids and health foods currently in development. Thank you so much. This is uh, an interesting time to be talking about masculinity, David. Thanks for being with us. Oh, you're welcome, Bert. It's a pleasure being on your show. I appreciate your taking interest in the subject in my article. Oh, sure. Well, I think a lot of people will be. Thanks to new iPhone technology, in 2020, the world has witnessed what has undoubtedly been going on for a long time, police killings of unarmed black men. As our guest says, killing civilians is endemic to policing, but our 
police killings a social ritual or an expression of a deeper aspect of masculinity? What is it about policing that makes a culture of hyper-masculinity? And what do we mean by such terms, David? Well, let me, I would, um, it's a very important question. And I think, uh, we live in a very difficult time, uh, for everyone, men and women, both white, black, and other people of color. So we're in a very difficult period. Um, I would like to, if I can reframe this thing in a very different way, I wondered always is if Donald Trump, my sense, Donald Trump and a certain kind of masculinity never raised their children, never actually fed the babies or changed their diapers. Um, Just as an example of what used to be considered, that's women's work. And uh, for many men, it's still perceived, and many women also perceive it in those terms. But, uh, But in the last 20, 50 years, that has changed considerably and what it means to be a man. And I just used the raising of infants and babies mm-hmm. as an, an illuminating, an example of this is, is that men do this now and they do it gladly because it gives them an, a, a different sense of themselves as a man and a different relationship to their own children and other children. And it sort of opens them up to a whole different world of experience and emotional relationships, not only to children and to say their, their partner, but also to themselves. And to, to, so to take this one step further, that feeling is really what distinguishes, if you will, a kind of traditional macho patriarchal masculinity from, and which is an extreme form of what we would call t- hyper-masculinity or toxic masculinity versus something which is much more 20th century, 21st century, yes. in which men are more quote-unquote sensitive and accepting of the pairing of themselves with others, particularly women, uh, as uh, in, in couples, that, but that they're both equal. It's not the man as the breadwinner and the woman as the subservient. Anyway. Yeah, it is changing. And, you know, I, I, as you talk, I'm, I'm remembering, you know, the old uh, uh, stereotype of, when women are giving birth, and it is still only women that can give birth, men were in a different room, waiting nervously, smoking cigarettes. Those days are long gone. And I will tell you, and and you too, we're both fathers, and how wonderful it is to have these great, great relationships with our, our children. It's and of course I help change diapers. I mean, it's it's just it's remarkable. But we. Not everybody's moved away from that old uh, stereotype. Right, and I, that's I'm just not. I personally don't know about Mr. Trump and what his relationships uh, have been to his children, uh, but I can only hypothesize this and use it as a kind of a stereotyped uh, image, if you will, sure. of a man who doesn't believe that this is men's work, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and that that symbolically represents the kind of historical change that I was trying to suggest in this article. Um, but go ahead, I, I don't want to no, keep talking. No, you've, you've certainly done it. And there is a newish term on the scene, toxic masculinity. I wonder if there is a clearly understood definition. What is meant by this descriptive huh. adjective toxic? Right. Your thoughts? Right. The term is defined 
set of values established by men in power that functions to include and exclude and to organize society in gender unequal ways. It combines a hierarchy of masculinity Uh and um, a different relationship between men and women and between different types of men regarding ideals, interactions, power, and the, the relationship, the patriarchal relationship that grounds this whole thing. Which, so it's really about how men relate to the world and their need to hold on to a certain uh-huh. kind of forced dominance. Now, this dominance was once real. I mean, we, we, we lived in a patriarchal, traditional, I mean, even that was in the most uh, extreme sense. We had a formal sense of patriarchal authority, you know, whether you're a king or the boss or the husband you, um, or let's say a god, you had a certain kind of authority over others, that others could be the subjects of your community, and in the context of the police, your relationship to someone else uh, who you perceived as a threat to either property or to to institutions of power. Uh, But it's that, that notion of authority which was grounded in this traditional value system which we call patriarchy. And that patriarchy has, which I argue, has really been eroded uh, over the last, let's, I don't know, pick a pick 100 years, 50 years under capitalism, in which the, because all of us have been turned into, for better or worse, wage laborers. We sell our labor power. And so as the, the world changed and industrialization gave rise and then turned into more of a service economy that we live with today, more and more women have been, and uh, you needed a two two income family in the post war world, of yes. America, at least with the United States. So women were drawn more and more into the labor force, uh, really earlier than the Second World War, but it became exaggerated after the war, and the, after the war ended in the fifties and early sixties, late you know late fifties into the sixties and beyond, where more and more women went to college, more yeah. and more women got jobs. You needed a two-income family to support the debt that you were covering as a, as a couple or as a family, yeah. whether it's the home, the car, or whatever. And in order to pay this, the single male Can't patriarch, if you will, couldn't do it anymore. It was just impractical and impossible. Um, anyway, well, I, I don't mean to... You talk a bit about uh, police in the article on, uh, right. on Counterpunch. Uh, and I'm wondering if... It's an interesting example. I wonder if there's something intrinsic to the expectation that violence by police man is the correct answer to police calls. Now, the vast majority of policemen are from working class backgrounds. The pay, look at that. Is there something about violence as a way to address problems that is especially appealing to working class men? What's what's the appeal of that? Well, I, I think the point is that that particularly, and you see this in at least in the United States, and I can't speak for other countries. Um, there's been a profound shift in the in this, the place, particularly white working class men. But I think yeah. one can generalize over the last say thirty, forty years as the white working class has been displaced from industrial work to basically, you know, office work, if you will, with service work. And that the law, there's been a profound loss of authority and the the singular purpose of one's life. You know, you, you, 
I mean, other than being a quote-unquote entrepreneur, whatever that means in this day and age, mm-hmm. and you're out there hustling, uh, you're dependent, increasingly dependent upon others, your bosses, your uh, your situation, to make a living, to to be the what used to be called the breadwinner. If yeah. old cliche terms, it doesn't. No one talks about breadwinners anymore. But that was the model that anchored a lot of ordinary. You know, I grew up with that. My parent, my you know, my father was a breadwinner. Yeah, sure. Um, I, you know, and I was a breadwinner for many years. I mean, my ex, who I still love, was worked also. I mean, but it was was understood that when early on that was the role that we weren't one as a man was supposed to assume was the breadwinner, the guy who went out and got the job, raised the money, the wife then had to spend it and be accountable for how she spent it. I think the question is for what I'm looking for in this article was trying to understand using various analytic uh, sources, you know, scholarly and psychoanalytic uh, sources, what in the relationship of the police and particularly as expressed in in acts of, of violence that the police commit made up for the lack of loss of authority and the loss of this quote unquote breadwinner status. And one of the terms that was used by, by a, a, a law professor was the punishment of disrespect. Yes. And for this, this guy, uh, the scholar, his name is Cooper, um, it was the, ability, the, the fact that the, the, the men that he analyzed in the, uh, his analysis was based upon the notion that once you challenge the authority of the policeman, and it could be done in any number of ways from the most, you know, you just refuse to answer or you question or you run away or you, or you use violence or whatever apparently you might be doing, you thus essentially challenge them and their authority and yeah. their position in the world. And this precipitates a great, a lot, various levels of violence. And then it goes from the simplest thing of just holding or yelling at somebody all the way out to shooting them. Yes. And and so this 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 interplay between self and authority in the world and status as a as a kind of provider, if you will, versus being disrespected or or challenged yeah. in terms of that authority. That's really to me was what I came away with in my in this article was, was trying to understand this phenomena about violence conducted by the police yeah. and this, what I see as the loss of a sense of masculinity, or I call it a crisis of masculinity. I mean, America has gone through different phases where masculinity has changed. Uh, that's what we talked about earlier. And I'm, you know, it's, it's a sad commentary that, that this is still being battled over. Yeah, it is. And I, I, I have had, I will confess, acknowledge, if you will, uh, experiences with police. If you try to talk to a police officer as you would talk to anybody else, just person to person, human to human, it doesn't work. They can't stand that. I have tried to say, all right, all right, basically, you know, not say this quite literally, but you got a uniform on, but you're also a human like I am. Uh Uh-uh doesn't work they have to have authority and you know this whole old idea of manliness you know it it, it used to be that that meant men who could whip others butts who could physically dominate how attractive is the officer's legal ability 
to beat others into into submission and to 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 have that unquestioned dominance. How dare you disrespect me? Whatever. How attractive is that to uh, to recruits? Maybe. I, you know, I, I think that's an excellent question. I really don't know. I'm not a police officer. I really, uh, I don't, I don't know. I mean. I haven't done enough research. I'm not a, this is not, you know, I, I was just struck by this question in light of what's going on with the Black Lives Matter movement and the various demonstrations and what those, and whether going from the most simple demonstration, walking with a picket sign to the most outrageous kind of civil disorder and how it's provoked these kind of responses. Partly the responses are driven by the authorities who control the police, not the individual cop on the street who's, you know, doing his job, if you will. Mm-hmm. But also part, which is that they're given orders, and, you know, as with President Trump, I mean, he sent in the, the National Federal Police Department to try and suppress some of these actions. You know, you still have individuals facing each other on the street, yes. and one is in uniform and one is, if you will, in a different kind of uniform, non, you know, a non-military uniform. Right. And that confrontation that is got, I mean, I was wondering if these, who are these two guys? You know, there are two men facing, I mean, and there was also a lot of women and the people of color and it's a very mixed bag. I don't want to sort of oversimplify this thing, but, but unfortunately, and I kept thinking about these two guys facing each other and one had the authority and one didn't. Right. And one threatened the other one's authority by through what I call disrespect. And I was really struck by that, that fact that the, People hold on to this notion of respect as a very critical component of who they are. And the, the power that that position gives them is this authority. Now, what's interesting to me is whether they carry this on to other parts of their life. I know there's a very high uh, incidences of, if you call family violence that yeah. takes place among police officers, oh, whether it's toward children or toward their wives or significant others, there's that level of violence and also another dimension of this problem i don't know what it's like if you're an ordinary police officer you go out with your your wife or family or friends to dinner and somebody starts going on do you do you immediately jump up and try to establish order or do you wait for actually a, a, a policeman in uniform to appear i mean you know what i was concerned was just this one piece of how police as and i'm a man right yeah how this motion of masculinity is affecting them as it changed my life, obviously it changed your life or this, how this has evolved over the last quarter century, if you will, or more. I'd say it's a lot better. I must say, I, I, I really think so. But to be locked into that, you know, having to hold the pose of being strong and tough, it gets tiring. You know, you write that there's a tragic dialectic between masculinity and police killings that has peculiar meaning today as the rate of police killings, especially black and Latino males, remains high. How this dialectic plays out may suggest the deeper changes now remaking American society. I, I wonder what those changes are. Well, we've gone over those a bit, but what may make more culturally conservative men fearful of those changes. Fear is such an important driver of action. Anger and aggression. What are they afraid of? Why, what is... Well, I mean... Go ahead. We can see this. I mean, policing is a dimension of, of social life, you know? And just like we can see this thing playing itself out, the same, if you will, I call it dialectic, between masculinity and, and social identity in the election that we're watching now playing itself out, in which 
if you look at who's voting for whom, you'll see there's a preponderance of white working class, non-college educated men yes. are the largest component of those who support Trump. What does he represent to them? There's a kind of identification. The Republican Party has shifted over the last half quarter century, half century oh, yeah. from being strongly New Deal identified with, with the Democrats to now a populist kind of quasi or racialist party, working class white men and women who support a kind of a very kind of narcissistic neo-fascist, which is Trump. And it's that that might and, and into the Republican Party. They're the strongest component of the. I mean, the Republicans used to be the country club gentlemen, and now it's populist white working class men and women. And so that process is also this is sort of is embodied in the crisis that I've tried to identify with the police officer, because a lot of these same policemen are backers of Trump. I mean, they voted the Republican Party, the, the organization, the, the police union, as well as many police officers and, uh, have supported Trump. And the question becomes, you know, why do they identify with this guy who ultimately despises them? I mean, because I mean, his whole life is a rejection of their life. He came from royalty from the, and, and he has utter contempt for other people. It's crazy to me. It's just crazy. It is certainly odd, but you're touching on a a lot of things here. It has been really evident, and Trump has said that the only way to judge right and wrong is who dominates. If you dominate, you are right. That's all there is to it. And the police unions, the police, oh man, I can see why that connects so deeply with that, because... You don't want to be questioned. You don't want to have to be a human equal to other people on the street. You have to dominate. You have to dominate. And there's a certain fear there, obviously, in Trump and in in a lot of uh, people, men who need to dominate and control. And it is interesting that, and, and for those who have just tuned in. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're getting wrapped up in the conversation. I forgot to identify ourselves. And uh, we're speaking with David Rosen, who's written about the deep crisis of masculinity in Counterpunch. Great, great uh, source for interesting pieces. Um, So often in the news, we hear about children and or wives who suddenly become missing. I can remember one in which the husband is interviewed on his front porch, appearing to be deeply saddened and all-out committed to finding his kids. Sadly, tragically predictable is that he did it. He killed his wife and kids, I believe. And as your article points out, the American Psychology Association reports men commit 90% of homicides in the United States. And as you mentioned how, you know, police, you know, are known at home for having to dominate their families. What about this uh, 90% of homicides in the United States are committed by men? What, what about that? I've heard about that story about the guy who, who murdered his children, wife. And there was an article by the American Psychological Association looking at the killings and who kills. And they mentioned this 90% number. And I thought it was really illuminating because as we do know that, I mean, that men are far, far more violent physically violent. I mean, women can also be violent in terms of language and other things, but uh, physically violent and also culminating in, in killings are men. I mean, it's just men are, you know, I don't know if it's part of our genetic makeup mm. or part of our long, long history of survival, 
but uh, men and you know these mythology goes way back to the cavemen, if you will, and who who's protecting the the, the family and the the community as the warrior. And much of policing is based upon, the, uh, and as well as the military, but that's a different story. Much of the mili- policing is based upon the notion of the, that they're, and in the indoctrination of many police forces, and I've talked about this in a different article, uh, is based upon the notion of the, the, the policeman as the warrior, the last warrior in society to hold the line against the end. You know, there's this great... and. Uh, crisis that's brewing that's right at the doorstep that if, unless we have without the police there to hold the line through stre- strength and this re- resolve and also if needed violence the whole system is going to collapse that's the ethos in which the police are trained um and they and fortunately many i think believe it uh, yeah. that they and then i mean but it's a it's a value system that's inculcated in men generally is to be violent because that's how you prove yourself yeah. uh, in terms of vis-a-vis other relationships. I mean, if look, if you're standing on a subway or I live in New York City, so you're standing sure. on the bus or subway or go to a store and some guy knocks into you by accident, it's immediately grounds for you might this might <laughs> end up in a, in a scuffle. I mean, it's crazy, but but we live in this kind of raw zone where we're. Um, one thing can easily lead to something unexpected, which also ends up in violence. Ah, so true. And you think about the various different wars, like if, if some country is offended, I mean, uh, there's a situation in the Marx Brothers, I forget which country it is, but uh, Groucho is the head of the country, and he feels insulted, you know, and so they start a war. It's it's so pervasive. It's It's amazing to me. And you're right, it's been going on a long time long time. As you write, being a man today is a challenge. Once upon a time, American culture was grounded in a traditional notion of hyper-masculinity that some have referred to hegemonic masculinity. A book I just finished reading called The War Lovers addresses this solid cultural tradition in the person of Theodore Roosevelt. Oh, Uh, for sure. uh, If you're not a warrior, you're not a man. And I think he right. had great insecurity uh, that apparently I hear the reality is he tennis was his sport, but there's no way he could be photographed in a tennis outfit. So he made up that thing where he's you know photographed in the rough rider outfit. He was clearly driven throughout his life by a deep and overriding need to prove his masculinity. How would you define this? And I'm not sure I pronounce it right. Hegemonic masculinity. I think it's very much along the lines of what we're talking toxic. I, but I think they basically refer to the same experience. It's that it's this super, very authoritarian notion of selfhood, masculine selfhood. That's how I would refer to it. Because at, at the core of it is, well, there's two sides. I mean, there's the conscious and the unconscious. The conscious side, mm-hmm. obviously, would be some kind of notion of wanting to establish oneself and fix oneself in the world where you're you go unquestioned and you have the authority to establish and define reality for everyone around you, whether that's your your kids or your 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 significant other or whether it's the guy who you're meeting on the street and you're in uniform and the other person is disrespecting you. That's yeah. that's the uh, what I would consider the sort of the objective form, but there's a subjective form, which has to do with the psychology of, of, of the need. Policemen really must feel profoundly insecure and yeah. scared 
witless going out every day and 99% of them, nothing happens to, you know, in terms of getting shot or, or abused or, or hurt in an accident or a, a civil disrupt, uh, you know, uprising of sorts. But sometimes something does happen and um, they must live with this sense of foreboding that something could happen and they may not be able to yeah. go home. They're, they could be, you know, seriously injured or they could be emotionally distressed. I mean, PTSD must must haunt the police people. This whole thing about uh, Blue Lives Matter and the identification with that, and I find it, I think it's, it's sort of vandalizing the American flag when they add that blue stripe in the middle. That is not right. That is not, in my opinion, an okay thing to do. It, it, there's a whole idea of a police state, you know, which... Uh, frankly, you and I, I believe, were raised Jewish, and we've seen police states in the past. And Trump loves, loves the idea of a police state, you know, and people not having their rights. Men, white men, control everything. They want a police state. Let's let's face it. And I don't think that's going to happen. It was exceedingly scary uh, before the election. Uh, things look a little bit better now. Uh but, but this idea of, of a police state is so antithetical to what America is. America is supposed to be a place where everybody is equal. I mean, we all have equal rights. But police, white, powerful, strong, big men, they, they have more rights. And it's, you know, I, I sometimes wonder if it's got to be an identity problem, that if you're not in control, if you're not a big masculine man, then, you know, there aren't the, that's been the working definition for so long of what a man is. It's, you know, to face this brave new world where we don't know what the new 21st century man is supposed to look like. It's got to be exceedingly difficult. I find it rather exciting myself and very, uh, it's encouraging that, that we have these other options that we don't have to be, I mean, because how many men, really, I mean, how many men are the big, tough, strong, dominating type? There's a heck of a lot of men, who I think the vast majority, who don't fit that picture. And are they supposed to feel less than? I, I, I wonder about that. For those who may have just tuned in, again, it's Bert Cohen. Keeping Democracy Live is the show. Our guest is uh, David Rosen, who's written a new article on the deep crisis of masculinity. And... A local police chief, whom I respected very much, a while ago said he considers an arrest to be a failure. I thought that was fascinating. The recent poorly named move to defund police, which I suppose we should talk about, really meant what it really meant, aside from the label defund police, it really meant redirect funds away from relying on violence or the threat of violence to solve the problems that police are so often called to. Even, they don't feel comfortable in so many situations uh, that they're called to that they don't know how to fix it. There's other people who know how to address these situations. Uh, what about uh, the idea of arrest being a failure? I think that's a really interesting concept that uh, I wish more people uh, could think about and understand. I wonder if there are other ways... Well, it makes me think about the budgeting, you know, the, the place that local police budgets hold, you know, in a municipality. 
it seems that universally the two biggest items in a local budget are the schools and the police budget. As I've often seen, generally schools take the hits. They get funding cut while no one dares to question ever-increasing police budgets. Two questions. Generally, what percentage of local budgets are earmarked for police? And the second question is, is this because citizens have become more frightened by the police in their own towns? Your thoughts, David? Right. I, I unfortunately, I can't answer your first question. I mean, I, I don't know enough uh, about how, uh, you know, local, enough about local budgets. I know, at least in New York City, we're talking about something in the order of five or six billion dollars being spent on the police in New York City alone. And this issue about reallocating wow. money for the police is being considered, but they're a powerful force and they, uh, and the politicians know that they bring, they are dependent on, on the police forces both because if they go on strike, then the, the, there's the threat of civil dis disorder, which they do not, uh, which politicians do not want to see happen. Yeah, for sure. So, so, uh, but it's an artificially, uh, you know, and the police often will be the first ones to say, we're not, you know, school therapists, we're not therapists to go out and talk and work with kids in the school. Yeah. You know, instead of having cops in the school, there should be more social workers. We're not, psychiatrists to go out and help these people who suffer from all kinds of mental disorders and uh, and thus uh, end up being shot, many of whom get shot by the police or arrested yes. for you know for whatever quote unquote crime they've committed so i think an honest assessment um by both by the police themselves but politicians would say we really have to restructure reallocate resources but, you know, it's like the military-industrial complex. I mean, the police-industrial complex is just as powerful, and it's a system of, you know, they just, they basically, it's a growth system. There's more power through more money. And just like the military, we need, you know, is, what is it? I don't know, is it trillions of dollars that goes into the military oh, every year? Do we need this? No. no. Um, <laughs> but, but it's an end in itself, and there's a lot of third parties that are, de like the aerospace industry. You know, like all the military contractors, the same gun manufacturers, the uniform manufacturers, all the people who are dependent upon the police budget. It doesn't only go to, you know, paying the cop their wages and their salary, you know, their retirement benefits. It's the infrastructure that's, that this money has to support of all these third parties that have the power to actually, you know, or leverage this power through lobbyists, et cetera, that, that essentially type politicians hands and we have a you know our politicians are notoriously cowards so yeah. um they're not going to take up the good fight you know unless there's a social crisis in which they're sort of given sort of leeway to raise these issues um and hopefully address them and you know this black lives matter movement has been able to articulate a lot of very important issues um mm -hmm. in terms of over policing i, mean, I would rather use uh, yeah and some there's been some positive results as a consequence of this in terms of reallocation. I mean, in New York, it's a joke because the money they took some additional money and they threw it into the schools and stuff like that. But it's just a shell game. I mean, mm -hmm. that's how I look. Um, anyway, yeah. and I, and if you look at it at bang for the buck, if you will, not the best phrase necessarily, but you know, if you want 
security for our communities, national security. We spend a zillion dollars, at least, <laughs> on the military, on weapon systems. Has that worked to make us more secure? I don't think so. I think it's worked to make us less secure. And I, I have a feeling the same could be said about spending on police, you know, send police here, send police there, just answer every social problem with sending in the police tough guys to to solve the problem. And we've seen how they've done that. There was that fellow, I forget where it was, uh, who uh, had a mental problem and he was walking home late at night and uh, and they shot him and everybody knew he had mental problems. And my point is, I guess, that there's got to be better ways of redefining national security. And I'm also thinking that maybe instead of defunding police, uh, uh, stop over-policing. Maybe that would have been a better phrase, because <clears throat> there is, I think, certainly over-policing. And one of the things that I find interesting these days, you know, that we have this, you know, hyper-masculine far-right, the, uh, some of the, the QAnon people, the Boogaloo boys, the, uh, the people who uh, wanted to, uh, you know, they dressed up in, in army uniforms or camouflage, whatever, with a whole bunch of guns. And they were talking about kidnapping the governor of Michigan, who happens to be a woman, uh, and perhaps even killing her. There's all these far right, exceptionally violent groups, which who knows how it'll happen uh, in, in the next few weeks or so, actually, quite frankly. But uh, they are very much attracted to policing, this alt-right, so-called alt-right. used to be, you know, the Ku Klux Klan and, and the Birch Society, people like that. I find it interesting <laughs> that a number of alt-right men have been easily able to join up and infiltrate the police, making dangerous situations even worse. What, I mean, and police are having a hard time recruiting uh, quality recruits these days. What kind of person is attracted to police in these days? And what about the the nexus between alt-right men and police? Well, I mean, there, there are two separate questions. I mean, uh, one is um, there is a, uh, a within the, with regard to your second point, I mean, look, there's a real outreach being done by various patriot, what they call patriot groups. Uh, to recruit either former soldiers and former military uh, as military people as, as well as current or former police officers in these organizations that are basically paramilitary they call it patriot organizations and they're they're you know they're all over the country I mean you know this is part of what um, the FBI has been looking into as well as various uh, you know, Southern Poverty Law Center and others have, have really dug into. And I would recommend for your listeners to check that out because a real there is some real specific data and, you know, analysis and articles written about this. And it's very effective. Um, and it's a very complex world unto itself because people are motivated by a variety of different things in terms of quote-unquote law and order versus what they consider to be abridgments of justice. I mean, there's a whole host of crazy stuff that goes on in these worlds. That's the second issue. The first issue that you talked about, uh, as I recall, um, is just the extent of this, this kind of boogaloo white extremism 
I mean, they're separate from the police because I yes. think uh, they're, you know, the police and the military are one part. And these guys are trained. Those guys have some kind of formal trailing training. The second side are, are to me, are a more unstable group. Yeah. And also because they're basically guys who, you know, you see them coming out on demonstrations. They have their their trucks. They have their Trump signs on, yeah. often wearing this camouflage outfits like the Boogaloo guys. Uh, and also looking for a fine. And there's just a lot yes. of uh, of people, men especially, and some women, who are uh, very dissatisfied with this country and very feeling that their rights, whether it's for guns or against, or, you know, that they feel that there's a sanctity of the, bi- the, the body in terms of women and abortion, whatever the issue might be, um, who believe that this country, and, you know... <laughs> Are uh, and also the racial issues that the white working class has not gained in any kind of fundamental uh, financial or in, in economic interest over the last tw- since 1973. I mean, there's been a real decline, and, and yes. working class life has suffered since 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 the, the mid 70s. It's just flat, and inequality has grown. And they be- and it's particularly and the you know they believe a lot of people believe that it's the people on the Coasts, the elites, yes. the college-educated people with money, who are their enemies, yes. and they feel that they are stealing their country from them. That is the hard-working people of, of the "quote unquote" the Rust Belt, if you will, to use that term. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a deep animosity. I mean, look, it drives the Republican Party now with its populist base. These are the most extreme versions of that sentiment, and. Um, it's a very scary situation, I, I personally believe. I mean, I don't have an answer to your question, but I, I, I've been reading and analyzing this issue for a long time. And one of the uh, questions I have about masculinity is, you know, people sort of make jokes about guys that have to have big, powerful Corvettes and big pickup trucks, and, you know, that, that perhaps uh, they're lacking in a certain area, and that this is trying to make up for that. And... You know, I, I have compassion. The, the the white working class men, they haven't gotten ahead. In the 2016 election, the, uh, when Hillary Clinton stupidly called them a, a uh, basket of deplorables, they didn't feel respected. They did not feel respected. They were not, right. in fact, respected. So what can they do? It, it, it certainly, it's an e- easy to see the steps that lead from that frustration that fear of being less than a man can lead to, you know, violence and having to physically dominate everybody else. And there's got to be other ways of dealing with that, of, of respecting people between the coasts. And they haven't felt respected. As, as a New York Times article recently uh, spoke to somebody from the Midwest saying that uh, t- uh, Hillary Clinton made people feel bad. Trump makes me feel good about myself. Yeah. Right. That's Well, you know, I you're I mean I I I understand the feeling. I mean I yeah, I I know what you're talking about. Uh a lot of people um I mean that's the core issue and what yes. what's interesting of course is how how that fe- first of all I mean I don't know what level to get on because it goes, you know, with this People are using that effectively, like Trump and the Republican Party have have really shifted yes. profoundly as as an organization 
they're no longer the, what I call the country club set. Yes. They are, you know, whether whether they like it or not. I mean, they're they're supporting this kind of resentment politics, which is uh, it's very effective. I mean, it really mobilizes people and is a place for people to push their put their rage. Yes. And the failure, I have to say, is the Democrats, oh, because yeah. the Democrats are not addressing this issue and they don't speak to the white working class. No. And I'm hoping we can. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to another guest I have coming on within the next couple of weeks, Thomas Frank, who wrote uh, What's the Matter with Kansas? Oh, he's, gonna, yeah. We're going to be talking about uh, the rejection of populism, how it isn't, it's been owned by the right wing, but it doesn't have to be. And we'll, we'll look into that in, right. in the right. future. And, uh, you know, since the election, armed Trump fans have been storming voting centers, determined to stop the counting of ballots. It's a direct attack on democracy, but it strikes me that it's clearly driven by a need to dominate over everyone. Good old fairness and dedication to peaceful transfer of power is just not permissible. The other side may not win. Your comments, please, David. Well, well let's, uh, I mean, I think there's this tendency is there uh, I was, uh, I mean, look, it's there. I mean, we see it. It's evident. Trump is playing that card yes. very strongly. Um, if he loses and we have, you know, there's, there's the loss both numerically. If he loses both, he's lost the popular vote. If he loses the electoral college vote, uh, and then he goes through this ritual dance of getting the, trying to get some kind of court judgment, yeah. which may or may not happen or and he may he's trying to get republican legislators at the state level to basically uh, invalidate the, the, the local elections Absolutely which amazing. may or may not happen yeah. uh he's made an attempt to get the u.s military to become his uh, ally and support his efforts to hold on to the white house mm. that has that hasn't uh they have rejected <laughs> him completely oh yeah um so it remains to be seen. And lastly, I mean, I, I don't know, other than a, maybe a handful of kind of honking horns and, mm. and screaming matches, I don't really know if anybody's going to come out and start shooting to support Trump. I mean, I, yeah. I just, if they're going to have armed, armed gangs going around trying to do what, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, confront the National Guard, the police. I, don't, I just can't yeah. see it happening. Well, I, um, I think there'll probably be a but, little you know, bit of it. Go ahead. Because they're more blustered. No, than no, I'm time. just, I'm just saying that I, I think that he's, he may have overplayed his hand. Yeah. Uh, but you know, look, we live in a crazy time, so this, I, I don't, can't really speak to this because I don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, we'll have to wait and see. How to me, it's how definitive the elections are. Yeah. If they're complete, if there's an overwhelming rejection of Trump. Well, it hasn't been, unfortunately, which amazes me. I'm I'm really shocked and very disappointed with that. And you bring up some points that remind me of Trump, you know, and and, and just fanning the flames of this in, intense hypermasculinity when we, when it comes to John McCain saying, "Well, I like military people who don't get shot down," you know, it's yeah. and, and and calling other the military people losers and suckers. That's that yep. goes yep. to the whole idea of you have to win. You have to dominate. There's yeah, nothing else yeah. that matters except domination, and that seems to feed the well, issue. Right. I mean, I, 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 I can. Can I offer just one last thought about my own? What I think is the greatest example of the contradiction of Trump, just because most people never even recognize this one. Okay. 
And it's not so much about masculinity. It's about the opposition to, to uh, social wealth, social medicine, socialized medicine in the United States, yeah. uh, mm. which is healthcare for all kind sure. of approach. Uh-huh. And he's denouncing all this. What's interesting to me is that Trump was, when he got sick, he went to Walter Reed. Now, Walter Reed Hospital is a military hospital run by the Socialist U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was treated in the best socialized medicine facility in the United States. Mm-hmm. And and that, right, no one, you know, it's obvious, but, you know, one doesn't realize that that's a form of socialized medicine, the is. U.S. military. Yep. Anyway, that's my little... No, I agree with anyway, you. One thing I wanted, I did want to ask about, you know, in terms of looking like a man, does being a sore loser, how does that fit in? And let's, you know, a lot of the, there, there's an impression that's, that's starting, I mean, Fox News is, is blasting back. And, you know, looking like a sore loser, to me, I mean... I can have all kinds of pictures of the the old fashioned, you know, hyper masculine man looking like a sore loser is not something that, that makes you look especially uh, macho or masculine. Yeah, I don't know if he'll ever accept defeat. I, I mean, don't I, I, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't expect him to be willing to accept defeat. So that may be a good thing for 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 men. Sorry to interrupt, but you know, maybe if he doesn't accept defeat. Uh, and and he looks like a sore loser. Maybe that could open up the door to, you know, a lot of these men who have been attracted to him saying, "Oh, I don't know. I don't think I want to look like a sore loser," and and start to accept it. I, I always try to be optimistic, and and well, hopeful. Go ahead. No, no. I think you. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it'll be an interesting question to see how this plays out. Um, you know, both what happens to Trump if he doesn't go to jail, which is a whole. Yes. likely possibility oh, yeah. or flee. Um, I don't know. It'll be an interesting to see. I mean, much to me, the fair, the scary thing to, uh, is less to do with Trump than to do with what happens to the Republican party as it goes forward and who will take on his mantle uh, and who is potentially, I mean, he's for all Trump's problems or whatever criticism, he's a brilliant, uh, Magician, if you will, yeah. in the sense of, <laughs> in, in terms of, in terms of the, you know, as a, a publicist, as a self promoter, he's just, uh, and we've never seen anyone quite as bad as and good as him. And the question is, who replaces him with this? With this, uh, will they have the same authority? Will they have the same charisma that this guy is engendering? Because the Republicans are really, uh, you know, have have. Are seed in the grounds for a much more reactionary political alignment in this country, and the question: Who will become the "quote unquote" leader? Will we resort to somebody like a Reagan moderate, if you will, consider Reagan, or will it be more extreme than Trump? That's mm. the challenge for him. Wow, and and a lot does have to do with men and the masculinity issue. Can they feel absolutely masculine without dominating? Um, and I just wanted to ask a question that you ask in your article. Sure. How, how can we effectively humanize masculinity and policing? What, what do you think can be done now? Well, I, I, great I, I, I think you identified some of the variables or factors or, or suggestions earlier with, 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 with under this broad thing of restructuring the police forces. That is that they have to lose 
not only the monies have to be redirected to other uh, complementary social functions, whether it's school psychiatrists, psychologists, whether it's uh, medical treatment for people who are, you know, lost souls who are wandering around and thus uh, potentially uh, threats, quote unquote, to society, whatever, uh, jobs for training, you know, geek funding, the, the, the state apparatus of the courts and the prison system, that whole thing. So there's a lot that can be done on that level uh, to redefine what it is to have civil authority. And second, I think, you know, I remember growing up, I grew up in New York City, and we actually knew the cops walking on the beach uh -huh. in my neighborhood. In, in this, I grew up in Queens, New York, mm -hmm. and we knew the cops on the beach. And so to me, it's like the interesting question is, well, why don't we require cops to live in the neighborhood? To be part of a community so be that community. you know people and so that you're 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 part of you're part of something and that people listen to you because they know you and you know them as and, an officer. And I would so, think that would present an opportunity as well, because if we have, uh, you know, it's called community policing, but there's all kinds of definitions of that. You know, if if you mix in, if people come to trust you because of who you are, because they see you on the streets you know, and and they recognize you as somebody who's who's there for the common good. Boy, I would think that would be a much much better system, and, and would put uh, police officers in less threat for you know for being right. victims of violence in the future. Right. There's a, lo a lot. But of that's part of the thing of, is is essentially taking the police are a powerful social force. You yes. said it yourself earlier that they. They and the schools are the two dominant yeah. parts of the, the local economy in terms of what taxes support. Yes. And so if you took that down a few notches, that power would become less and less of a threat to self-interest because it's all about self-interest and promoting themselves as a political social force. Mm. And if you reduce that, that actually would, would, I think, help the community itself survive and support itself. Anyway, we can do it. We can do it. There's all kinds of opportunities among the vast challenges. So if people want to read more of your stuff, uh, you write regularly for Counterpunch, I believe, right? And the Progressive, yeah. Other oh, and the progressive. as well. Thank you so much. And uh, this uh, it's good to open doors for new, better opportunities here. Uh, when They say when one door closes, another opens. Who knows? It might happen. Thanks so much for being with us Bert. and keeping democracy alive, David Rosen. Thank, thank you. you, Bert. Thanks a lot. You take care now. Be well. When I grow up to be a man Will I dig the same things that turn me on as a kid? Will I look back and say that I wish I hadn't done what I did? Will I jump the Yeah.
Yeah.